Yeah, Kelly on The Office, yeah. Uh, where she's interviewing for the manager job, and she talks about, you know, her management experience and uh, as the head of her department, and uh, Jim's like, but you're the only one in your department, right? Yeah, and I'm really hard to manage. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Precon Geeks, your home for all things pre-construction. I'm your host, John Reich. Today, I am joined by a panel of our Beck Tech employees. Uh, we've got uh, Jan Barron. How are you doing today, Jan? Always a pleasure to be here. Frosty and chilly this winter day. Oh, yeah, that's because you just choose to live in the, the frozen tundra of Nebraska, so I can't really, <laughs> I can't really blame. That's, that's on you. Um, <laughs> we got uh, our Grant Stucker out of Colorado. How are you doing, Grant? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on again, John. It's um, it's also cold here in Colorado, but not the frozen tundra as Jan is experiencing. But uh, sounds like Texas has gotten their own little bout of cold weather. Is that right? Well, it's I mean, it's cold for us. I mean, yeah. I went to school in Michigan, so this is just like Tuesday in Michigan. But for Dallas, I've had some other calls with some other folks on the team and everybody's wearing like beanies and like all bundled up and stuff. And I'm like, man, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Dallas cold. They, it's cold, but I'm still basking in the warmth of our national championship that we just won. So I'm, I'm still uh, riding that high. So it's uh, it's been a good good month of January for me, despite the cold. So um, so our third member of the panel we've got on today is uh, Lauren Senska. How are you doing today, Lauren? I'm doing pretty well, and I am proud to report Atlanta is also cold. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the, the theme of the country right now is everyone is cold. So. Just how it rolls sometimes, but uh, that's how winter works, I guess. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so we're going to have everyone on today. We wanted to just basically do some rapid fire questions about pre-construction. And uh, all of us here on the call, we've all been in that pre-construction seat, uh, generating estimates, putting out bids. So uh, we're just going to do some rapid fire questions and see where that leads us and see what happens with it. So, all right. So the first thing. What do you do to scare someone up? when you get a bid that is just coming in screaming low on bid day? What's the first thing you would do? Lauren, how about you kick it off for us? Uh, I guess I would call them and ask them what, what was up, if they see anything funky in the drawings, if they think they could have missed anything. Okay, that's always, I mean, that's general practice, yeah. But Jen, you got any, uh, I see you, you got that pondering look in your eyes, so. <laughs> um. Depends on if I like them or not, uh, and how bad we needed the job. You know, it could range anywhere from you send them a contract, and at the bottom of it, it says, you know, all drawings and specifications that catch all line that subs hate, and yep. say sign it by tomorrow, or I, I got to go to the next guy. Just force them into it. Uh, but in most cases, you know, it's it's a team effort, and you try to scope them out without necessarily shopping that bid. Um, but sometimes you just got to say. You're way low, and it's scaring me. Yeah. Yeah, I, totally I would agree with that. Um, you know, definitely if you get a screaming low bid, you kind of get a little bit of excitement, but then you also go, this is too good to be true. Um, <laughs> and so I, I would definitely be like, scope them out, make sure they have every single thing against all the rest of the competition. And then I would say, like, just so you know, like, you are ex like a certain percentage lower than the rest of the competition. Um, I, I, I have to make sure that you didn't miss anything because yeah, 
we definitely don't want to get six months into construction and you guys come to us saying you guys made a mistake and then we have to figure that out. Um, you know, we, we were not a, a, a GC that was, that would force everybody to eat something just based off of little mistakes. Um, but sometimes those little mistakes can turn into big dollar signs. So, uh, yeah, that would be my first course of action. Scope them out and actually tell them you're really low. Can you just take another double look at this and make sure you're good? Yeah, I think it's it's really tough when you're in a public bid type situation and you know that low numbers out there and you know someone's going to grab it and take hold of it. Um, so it's that that's a real tough that's a tough conversation to have to have with a guy and it's, mm -hmm. especially if it's one that you know and you like and you've worked with a lot to give him a call and say hey this is this is way low you need to go back and relook at this that's for sure it's never never an easy conversation but it's it's something that we have to do to be good partners to our to our trades so 100% so on those difficult conversations what is one estimating task that you hate but would never admit to your boss. I can tell you mine. I mean, take mine's off. take off. Absolutely. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cold calling you know. these subcontractors. Yeah, Ooh. cold calling these subcontractors, take off. I mean, just the mundane things that are not um, are not adding a ton of value to the project. Like yeah. What I what I loved about being in precon and and my past group was a mostly negotiated CMGC you know brought on very early on creating and maintaining relationships with ownership and the architectural engineering community um, being somebody that's actually a part of the the vision of the project and affect how that the direction of how it gets built through feedback that I have. Um, by either my previous experience or through the relationships I have through the subcontractor community. And those are the tasks. Anything that has to do with that is what I really enjoy doing. Um, takeoff is not one of those, you know, it's a necessary evil. Um, but thankfully, you know, as I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware, there's certain things that have come online that are that have helped that um, that vein significantly. So another one that and it doesn't apply to all the bosses that I've had, but uh, to one or two estimate reviews. Um, it's supposed yeah. to be kind of a high level flinch test. Are things coming in? Ask some questions of scope, but they end up going line by line by line by line. Uh, reduce unit cost here. Oh, you're fudging numbers over there. Increase costs over here. And could be a two, three, four hour meeting and going over all the, all the minutia of the project. And at the end of the day, we changed the, the bottom line by less than two percent like you just wasted my life for nothing and, and they yeah. criticized everything i did the last two weeks yeah uh, the, uh, go ahead, uh, the worst was when the px's would hop in on that like i enjoyed <laughs> them with my boss but after the px would do it and then halfway through he'd call up his buddy who wouldn't respond to any emails or calls and finally get a number from him and throw everything off that was the worst is hey, I've I've been working the submarket for weeks trying to get numbers and then you just make one phone call and get a number at the last second that no one knows anything about. Yeah, that's never, never a fun conversation. Never a fun time. So so another uh similar to the uh difficult conversations and the cold calling subs. Uh, so if you bid a job and 
if you're looking to bid jobs, I should say, if you're looking to bid uh, new work, what's your best avenue to find new work in the marketplace? And we know that construction's always busy. There's always projects out there, um, but finding them can sometimes be a little bit more difficult. So what, what strategies did you guys employ to try to find new work? You know, for me, thankfully, like we were very heavy and just being very relationship based and there wasn't ever any too much shortage of opportunities. I, I actually remember more saying no to opportunities just because we were just way too busy and couldn't handle, you know, more work. Um, but I think, you know, to add any kind of color to that question is just making sure you're you have those those networking relationships with a number of different groups. And I think one that would actually come to mind is just having a solid relationship with the architectural and engineering community and just yeah. giving them a call if if you're looking for something and say, hey, what are you seeing? What are you working on today? Is there any chance that there's an opportunity for us to jump on board um, to provide budgetary pre-con or you know, something that will add value to whatever clients you're working with. So I think leveraging those architectural firms relationships would, would be a big one for me. Yeah, and I would say like, and as a as a trade partner or a subcontractor, <clears throat> the same rule applies. I mean, really just call up the GCs that you've been working yeah. with or that you, you see are working in the market, um, see what opportunities there are there. Uh, there's always opportunities and um, I mean, it does, unfortunately, cold calling sometimes is required to be able to just call someone up that you might not have a lot of dealing with, but you do, yeah. you can get some leads that way. You can get some good inroads that way too. Sure. I can definitely see, um, and I experienced this a lot when I was there, um, from a subcontractor perspective, we, it seemed like we constantly had, um, you know, leaders from different subs in all different scopes coming into the office and just bringing us some burritos, some coffee, you know, some snacks. You know, I feel like everybody in pre-con, no matter where you are in the country, can be tempted with food and, and you know, free cocktails and stuff. And and so um, just throwing your hat in the ring to say, hey, we just want to keep touch. Make sure we're still on your solicitation lists. Um, can I bring in some $2 breakfast burritos and have a conversation and see what you guys are yeah. working on? Um, I definitely the best of contractors that I've worked with have had that kind of um, constant communication with us to say, hey, yeah, we need to make sure that they're on the list um, so that they uh, they um, continue to be a good partner for us. I came into pre-con from the field and uh, the pre-con 15 was uh, was cautioned to me <laughs> my first my first couple of weeks and it didn't take long for those sub yeah. subs and vendors showing up with food and doing lunch and learns and taking us out golfing. It's like, man, I'm loving this, but the scale just kept ticking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it's, right. it's a it's a rough life, I tell you, to to get free food. <laughs> that that's it's terrible. So, um, so in a situation where you're working on a project, what what did you guys do if you wouldn't, you weren't getting clear communication or direction from your owner? So if you you're asking questions, you're like, hey, I need to know, like, what do we need to do in this situation? And it's just ghost you, you don't get any answers what do you what do you do to try to draw that owner into the process a little bit better i always found it useful to uh lead the owner uh all the time uh whether they uh whether they wanted me to or not and what i mean by that is i would tell them what i'm planning on doing but there are other options 
Um, and if they want to entertain those other options, they need to get on the horn and let's figure it out um, because this train ain't stopping for nobody. And some responded positively to that. Some would, you know, immediately pump the brakes, call a meeting, you know, uh, round everybody up and have a conversation. But uh, for the most part, I found that an effective way to um, engage the owner on the things they wanted to be engaged in and keep things moving uh, where, uh, you know, where there wasn't a, uh, a a decision that needed to be made by the owner specifically per contract. Hmm. Yeah, I think that also relates back to like those hard conversations where if you are, if you do have a, a, a owner, developer, whoever, owner's rep that is struggling with making decisions or just stretched too thin, um, you know, reminding them like, hey, this is why you guys hired us so that we can provide this direction for the project. Here's a menu list of what you have available to you. And of that menu list, there are certain dates that need to be associated with each decision. You know, if we're looking at something like this and um, we need to change the system, well, that needs to happen now. Otherwise, like after April 1st, you know, we're not going to be able to go back to that and still meet the, the deadline of CO. So um, having, you know, a clear menu list of options, the costs associated with them, and then a deadline on, on what happens if decisions aren't made by a certain time um, gives them that just clear communication, clear documentation of where they need to take that decision. Yeah, I mean, I've always, and, and I would say this is with anyone that uh, doesn't communicate, whether it's a trade partner, whether it's a architect, engineer, anything. If you give someone a decision that you made, it's much more likely to get a response. And they'll they'll tell you real oh, yeah. quick how wrong. I mean, I was wrong so many times in estimating that um, that I was very quickly corrected by the parties that needed to make the decision. So oh, yeah. I always provided the answer. I didn't care if it was right or wrong. I mean, I obviously wanted it to be right, but uh, I provide an answer, and they would tell me how wrong it was real quick, rather than just say, "Hey, what is the answer?" They don't. That usually doesn't get the response nearly as quickly. Yeah. And I, and I would add to that, like, again, to, to build off of the relationships you have with your architectural and engineering community, you know, oftentimes, especially even in a negotiated world, the architect and the engineer, those guys, especially the architect, are brought on even before the contractor is, and they're trying to fulfill a vision that the owner has given them. Right. So if you aren't getting feedback from your owner or they aren't giving you the kind of responses that you need, um, partner with the architect and the, the team lead on that side to figure out what is the owner really looking for so that we can provide a recommendation together. Um, you know, that's essentially why we were both brought into the fold so that we can do these things while the owner is doing some other things. And I think that, that ultimately that's that's why they hired us. So if we can create an assumption and a clarifications document that says, here's what we have included. Um, and it's also been blessed by the architect. I think most of the time like that goes through. Um, but if you kind of work in your own bubble and you don't involve those other entities, then there's definitely you get some resistance. And it's nothing yeah. I feel like more embarrassing than having the architect um, kind of point you out and call you out in, a, in an OAC meeting because you're not being collaborative. Yeah, that's that's never fun. Uh, Over communicating is always a better answer than not communicating for sure. Lauren okay. has legendary status when it comes to this topic. I would love to hear some of her tips and tricks. So 
Uh, I did a lot of early on stuff, uh, not so much stuff with dead deadlines and stuff. Um, always stuck to my agencies. I would like to clarify every, like over clarify everything. Uh, but my big thing is I used to have a boss who told us, hey, they're paying a premium for you to have industry knowledge. You need to know how to fill in the gaps. You need to know what's industry standard. Go back and look at all of your other projects and see what you did in this application uh, and talk to your subs and fill in the blanks uh, because we're the ones in the documents all the time. We're the ones pricing every time. Uh, we're the ones who should know where, where the gaps are and how to provide options to fill them. Great point. Yeah, very good. That's exactly. You got to give an answer to to get any traction there for sure. So we're going to switch tacks a little bit. So now we're going to ask you guys, what's the craziest thing that you've seen as an estimator? Lauren, I know you I know you've got something on this one. Uh, back to subcontractor lunches. Uh, these two flooring subcontractors showed up one day absolutely hammered trying to take us out to lunch. Uh, ended up agreeing, but it was very clear that we were driving in separate cars. <laughs> but we had to like sit far enough away from them not to be able to smell their breath. Oh, it was it was an interesting subcontractor lunch. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but that was probably one of one of the craziest occurrences. Jen. You got one? Oh man, I, I'm afraid that if I give any specifics, it's going to be too easy to tell for for listeners who know me in my past <laughs> who who I'm talking about. Oh gosh, um, I mean, as an estimator, I think the craziest thing was um, having watching an argument between an owner an owner rep and uh, the leader of my team. Uh, like just flare up into a shouting match. Um, but I also came from the field and things get nuts when you're wearing boots and a hat all day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I when I was in the field, I, I worked at tr some travel jobs. And when uh, when you travel uh, with, a, with a field crew, it can kind of feel like sailors coming to port when they're out of town. Like yeah. oh, all yeah. the rules go by the wayside oh, yeah. and it, it gets it gets wild in a hurry. And I'm yeah. I'm too ashamed of that history to share any of those stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we do want to keep it relatively PG, just to be We're clear. still family for this is a PG, PG podcast. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I also, like, my when I started my career, I was in the field. Um, so I'm sure that we could probably take up an entire podcast of just oh stories gosh. from the field. Crazy to field stories, yeah. Con. Disguise um, my voice. I blocked that and... point of my life out completely. Yeah, yeah it's I definitely not to remember it. Definitely boring for me. I would say, um, from my perspective, I I, I lived through, um, and I would actually use the term survived the um, estimating pre-construction space during the pandemic, and the insane amount of escalation that you would see in the marketplace. Um, and it, an example of that is, I was working on a um, a. Uh, charter school that was um, kind of like a STEM-based type charter school, and they were using um, pre-engineered metal buildings as buildings in their campuses. Um, and they had like a year one building that was like their freshman building. It was a pre-engineered metal building. Year two was sophomore, and so every year they would build a new one for their um, their students. It was the same exact building every year, and the first one started in 2019. 
The second one started in 2020, the third one, 21, and the fourth one in 22. What an awesome and case study. From, yeah, the exact <laughs> same building. And so, and, and the difference between overall cost between the first one and the last one was, I think, an increase in like 65% of the cost of the building. Um, obviously, there's some scopes in there that are more than others, some scopes that were very minimal. But a pre-engineered Bell building, when you'd heard horror stories about steel costs rising and gyp steel, like stud costs rising, it was a very trying time to have very difficult conversations with that owner at the time to justify, this is what we're getting from the marketplace. Like, no, it doesn't make sense. But I don't know, like, I don't have any other insight for you. I'm completely open book with you. You can see all of the access to all of the subcontractor, um, you know, bids that we've received. And it has gone up significantly. So that was that was probably among other instances of all the other projects that we were dealing with during that time was the craziest um, time to live in pre-con. Yeah, no, that was... That was not a fun experience, I can tell you that. It was, uh, I had a similar project that we we worked on and we put the number together based on historical comps right before COVID started. And then the first drawings come out right in the middle of that summer. So everything was pretty much at a standstill at that point. And we ended up uh, pricing it. We actually got sub input this time and it was about that 60% markup on several major trades so it was a huge impact to the job and so we we go and present this to the owner and we did our estimate comparison with the original number and then all the variants and showed all that and uh the owner was just like yeah this is going to pass we're going to continue writing with your original number um that did not go well <laughs> at the end of it um so yeah it was uh just sometimes people just don't want to listen to the reality of the situation sometimes. So that's never, never fun, but it was, uh, it was interesting for sure. All right. So we're going to wrap up our last question here. Um, pretty broad one. So just throw out whatever you want. Uh, so if, if you were able to keep everything the same, but change one thing about pre-construction, what is the thing you would change? Just one thing. Yeah, okay. You to change something. Yeah, one thing. One. Think, it could be a big one, a little one, whatever you want to do. The amount of bids that BG pushes on on precon. I feel like precon needs to stand up for itself and say, "Hey, we can only reasonably handle X number of bids a week. Like, we can't do your buddy a favor. We're already overbooked." So slow down the influx of projects. Yeah. For each company. Yeah. That that definitely is a. It uh, causes a lot of heartache and heartburn for all of our pre-con teams, for sure. I think that, so I don't know if, if I if I had a chance to think about that over the course of a couple of days, um, my answer may be different. But what comes to mind is when, um, you know, when we had pre-con world and, and Ty Moore was up there speaking, he, met, he said something that I thought was powerful that I, I know we've talked about on the podcast before, is the actual title of being an estimator 
um, I don't think really justifies what estimators do in today's world. Um, yeah. You know, even even when you talk about, you know, being a, a pre-construction manager, you know, what does that mean? So I think like overall, just like a, a title revamp of the the folks that are the the boots on the ground, quote unquote, in pre-con doing estimating, you know, having them get their, um, you know, their uh, just a title that reflects more of of what they truly do on a day to day basis. Um, I, I think so that just would a be complete rebrand, complete rebrand, rebrand of, of pre construction. Yeah. Rebrand. Well, and the, the other thing too is like you know I speak to a lot of of different general contractors and subcontractors, cost consultants throughout the country on a daily basis, and a chief estimator for one group is not the same as a chief estimator for another group or a senior estimator or a pre-con manager, a director of pre-con, VP of pre-con, estimator one is like everybody has their own definition of things. So like it would be nice to have a complete rebrand and be like, if you do this in the industry, you are an XYZ person in pre-construction. Um, you know, not just selfishly to make it simpler on myself, but also just like to give people titles that are deserving um and and obviously make them feel like they are a problem solving piece of the project um i don't feel like the term estimator truly does it justice yeah makes sense yeah. and on on that same thread and i know i've said this before on numerous different platforms uh, but precon came about organically uh, for builders to solve an internal problem. Um, and it's slowly growing into its own uh, profit center. Um, I think in the next 10, 15 years, we'll see it be an actual profit center for most mm -hmm. builders around the country. Um, but it doesn't have, Precon doesn't have the same uh, litigious scrutiny that other aspects of the built environment have that have been baked into contracts contract templates through case law and statute right. statutes and things like that. And so what's with that organic growth, uh, it, it's resulted in everybody just doing what needs to be done at an at an institutional level. Uh, and I think we need to start collaborating and standardizing some of the expectations that are coming out of precon. Like what's what are we really doing as a department uh, in and as an industry? Uh, and start to kind of level set expectations so that we're all we all just don't feel like we're making it up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's a great so, point, Jan. That actually sparked something that that um, I I'm not going to change my answer. I still think that's that's relevant, but I also would <laughs> add to it and say, um, at least in the most of the people that I talk to in precon, their entire team are people that they're trying to recover on their overall fee of the project. Yeah, not a lot of folks are actually assigning a pre-construction fee for doing the work that they're doing. And I see Lauren chuckle a little bit. I, I would love to, to see an in. industry standard of a pre-con fee that owners are now like they understand that they're willing to pay because the value that the pre-construction teams are bringing to these projects is very invaluable. I mean, there's you, you, it's hard to put a number on it because there's significant amount of um, of refinement that's happening on their shoulders throughout the entire design and pre-construction side of things that is much more deserving than just trying to get recovered on the job through your fee, um, through your, through your construction fee. 
So having a mechanism that's in place, industry standard that specifically talks to pre-con fee would be, um, that's less than a quarter of a point, right? Uh, would be, <laughs> I think, a, a, a very positive impact on the industry. Yeah, that definitely, so that's segues pretty nicely into what mine is. So um, the one thing I that always aggravated me is, if I don't know if every state has this, but I know in Texas at least, um, they are not, public institutions at least, are not allowed to select architecture and design services based on a fee, right? They have to go off qualifications only. And so at the end of it, they say they pick their team and they say, okay, this is the, this is the, the team that we're going with. And that's the only time that the contract value starts getting pulled in is when they start negotiating after they've made the selection. And to me, if we could just wholesale get off of the I'm going to select a contractor based off price and I'm going to select everything based on qualifications and scope of service and level of service. That would be not even just for pre-con and estimating, but just as a whole in construction industry would be so much nicer. We wouldn't ever have to be getting down to a, a you know tenths of a percent on our fee and what's going to be acceptable. It's just we're, we are selected because we're qualified, because we're the best for the job, and then we'll go and negotiate and tell you what the value is after that. I think that would be that'd Agreed. be wonderful if we could ever get to that point. Agreed. But, I, mean, I mean, how many times have you have you been in the position where you've actually lost a job because somebody undercut fee, somebody undercut um, the, the actual direct cost of the work because of something that may be subject to interpretation in the documents or the RFP, and they're weaseling their way into it because they're going to win the job. But then six months later, 12 months later, when that specific scope of work comes into the fold, they go, well, we don't have that because that wasn't shown very clearly. That was clearly said in our in our um, RFP clarifications, whatever it is. And now you would have actually been the selected contractor yeah. if that wasn't something that was a factor. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that, John. Yeah, the number of times either we made last second cuts to get the job because we knew that was needed or like you said lost the job because of some omission that someone else made uh that that happened way too often to me and i know as a as a whole everyone would be i think a little bit happier and easier in their in their seats if they yeah. uh if they didn't have to do that on every job for sure yeah so well, that's that's all the questions we've got for you guys today. So thank you all for coming on. This was uh, this was fun. We'll have to do it again sometime and uh, see if we can solve some more of the world's problems in in pre-construction and and get uh, we'll get some more out there questions next time so we can hear some of those uh, crazy field stories. We'll I'll get a a bleep <laughs> button so that we can uh, disguise who's on here for for next time. So a voice changer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it. No, I appreciate it, John. Always a pleasure. Cool. Well, thank you guys. It was a lot of fun and uh, we will uh, see you guys on the next one. All right. Uh, and so for anyone else that's listening, um, if you have questions that you want us to answer either in this format or in a longer scale format, uh, please feel free to send them in. You can email us at precongeek at beck-technology.com uh, or you can go to our website. Uh, Suzanne's always posting a lot of good blog posts there or you can go onto our community and uh, post additional questions on that page. So as always, thank you for listening and we will catch you guys on the next one.